everybody. It's Theology on Mission podcast. We're back again. That's that's Mike Moore and I, and we're here to talk about the issues of culture. Theology engaging the issues of culture for Christ, His kingdom, His mission. Mike Moore, it's it's a beautiful day in yeah. Chicago. It is. I'm being blinded by the sun that's coming through my window right now. You're being blinded by the sun. Hopefully there's some theological meaning there as well. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest. Is this a special guest, Mike Moore, or not? Sometimes uh, we say our next guest needs no introduction, but this might be the one time in the seven years of this show that that is actually true. <laughs> this is the one time. And so allow me to introduce our guest and his name is are you ready is there a drum roll do we have sound effects on this podcast yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll have to drop it in here in a second <laughs> <laughs> but we have uh, dr stanley harawas with us a storied theologian in in the united states gilbert Rowe professor at duke divinity now emeritus but he's never emeritus stanley is always on the move. He was at Notre Dame. He, by the way, Mike, did you know when he did the Gifford lectures uh, some 20 years ago in mm-hmm. Scotland, that he was the first American to do that, I think 40 right. years? Did you know that? I did know that. And Stanley also taught here in the great state of Illinois for a little while. Stanley doesn't remember this. Sorry, sorry to talk about you, Stanley, in front of you, but this is kind of intro for our audience. But Stanley doesn't know this or may not remember this, but I, he he consented to read my uh, dissertation at Northwestern Garrett back in the 90s. And I showed up at his office and and he told me, oh, well, first of all, Stanley, you said, hold off, you're early. I got to finish my reading in the morning, okay? Which, by the way, affected me for the rest of my life. <laughs> for the rest of my <laughs> life, I've been getting up at 5.30, 6 o'clock, trying to get my reading in before 8 o'clock, just like you. That's how much you affected me, Stanley. But also, he told me he was preparing for the Gifford lectures back wow. then. So uh, anyways, I that's a fond remembrance. He was Time Magazine, America's Best Theologian. And I know Stanley doesn't particularly love that title, but we have to say it because it really does speak to his stature. He's been a friend and a mentor to many of us, including me. Stan, welcome to Theology and Mission Podcast. Oh, thank you very much, David. Yes. I always, I always think of David as you're, you're my missionary to the evangelicals. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, man. I don't I don't understand the evangelical world. <laughs> There's a lot of us who don't understand the evangelical world right now, Stanley. So thanks for saying that. Hey, so uh, here's here's some questions. Now, Stanley, feel free to say I have no idea what you're talking about, Fitch, but just riff with us on on these questions. The church in the West, like folks, I'm gonna entitle this podcast this present moment and and the state of the church in our culture and the church in the culture today. But we have a church in the West, especially the United States, that's in disarray, meaning it's declining, meaning thousands, millions. And now we're not talking about the Protestant mainline church. We're talking about evangelicals. We're in the midst of antagonism, infighting, splitting over every cultural issue from sexuality to race to politics, red churches, blue churches, we're in a mess. Where did the church go wrong? What happened here to the church and its 
witness and presence in the midst of this? Well, I wish I had some special insight about these matters, but I don't. Well, I think in some ways the Western church, and in particular the Protestant form of that, is dying of its own success. It came out to take over the world, and the world took it over. The kind of Christendom world we've been living in it turns out to be a subtle temptation to miss the radicality of the church as a body of people that are called from the world to serve the world. And I think what's been happening in the American evangelical world is, is very much the continuation of a kind of Americanization of Christianity that finally kills who we are as Christians. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, let me just give, I'm, I've thought a lot about, you know, what in the hell happened that uh, evangelical Christians suddenly get behind Trump and this sort of thing? What, what's been going on? And I wonder, and these are just big speculative uh, suggestions. I wonder if we're not coming to the end of the moral capital that World War II produced. World War II created an American people. And there was, therefore, a sense that you knew who you were. You were part of the American people. That knowing who you were has been lost by a number of people that seem to be from the working class folk of America. Yeah. And I I just I mean the kind of line is there's nothing wrong with America that a good war would cure. That gives people a sense of identification yeah. and so on, which of course is not a good idea for Christians. Allegedly, we we know who we we are. Yeah, I I think what is it's just remarkable on a thin account of Christianity we see so many people. Jonathan, I can't talk to you now. I'll call you back in a little while. Thank you. Bye bye. Jonathan Tran. Everyone should read his new book. It's uh, terrific. <laughs> we, oh my goodness. Stanley, Mike and I were with Jonathan. Was it Wednesday night? Yeah, was... a week ago, we got dinner with Jonathan here in Chicago. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, that's great. We know his work and he is teaching, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, he's teaching at Northern in our, he's teaching a seminar on, on racism, culture, and the church for our doctorate in contextual theology. So yes, we know and do love Jonathan Tran. So, but will you tell him not to inter interrupt our podcast? <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> I, I called him yesterday. <laughs> so he was calling back.
Yeah, no problem. I'm just joking. You know, if I can just move on to the theme, just carry this a little bit further with what you're on. You know, folks, Stanley has a book out, Fully Alive. It's it's his most recent book, The Apocalyptic Humanism of Karl Barth. It's a treatment of Karl Barth, which has become a fo- which is always a focus in his work. But you know, Barth famously stood up to Hitler, and he left Bonn for Switzerland and. You know, all that. But it always seems to me, and I think I got this maybe from your Gifford lectures, but it always seems to me that Bart and maybe Bonhoeffer, too, could have done a better job on ecclesiology. In other words, how do you stand up to a state without a political body to resist the state? And could Bart have done a better job on ecclesiology? And then what does that have to say? So answer that question, Stanley. And then what does that have to say to evangelicalism and 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 the problem of Trump, if I can put it that way? Well, of course, I criticize Mark for not giving an account of the agency of the church as embodied through the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if that's a fair criticism of Mark. I mean, when you've said so much, <laughs> you've said something right somewhere in the ecclesiology. <laughs> I mean, Bart, I think Bart was a miracle. And how, how did you give the kind of work he did theologically within the world of Protestant liberalism? But he did it in a way that I think you just continue to learn from because he had such a rich theological having People forget that one of the crucial aspects of what makes Christianity Christianity is a vocabulary. And one of the challenges of Christians in America is that we have far too slim. We need to know how to use many words that we no longer recognize as our words. The, the second part of your question was... Well, okay, if, if I'm right, and to the degree you agree with me, Bart's problem, or at least the German church's problem, was it didn't have an ecclesiology sufficient to stand up to Hitler. What does that say about evangelicalism and Trump? Oh, evangelicalism doesn't have an ecclesiology, period. <laughs> it's got... You, you, and at least it's, I understand, it's not you and your relationship with Jesus, which may be have a relationship with God, which you then go to have expressed within this group of people with a praise band. The, so without, for evangelicals, Jesus saves you in a way that the church is secondary. The kind of, offensive way to put it, that evangelicals find offensive is outside the church, there is no salvation. Yes. The less offensive way to put it is without the church, there is no salvation. So the evangelical sense that they're going to find the church that believes what they believe rather than the church that will tell them that there's 
things that they are to believe because the church tells you that you are to believe them and to operate in a way that is faithful to what Christians discovered through the lives of the saints. So the kind of individualism that is so prominent among evangelicals is just killing church. I just don't, I just don't get Joel Osteen and people like that. Where in the hell do they come from? And why, why, why would you go to worship in Joel Osteen's church where all you hear is pablum that you could get you know, from contexts that have very little to do with Christianity. I just don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's right about now that Mike Moore wants to tell you that Joel Osteen's dad, John Osteen, the founder of Lakeview, I think was called Lakeview Church, was a graduate of Northern Seminary back in, I don't know, 1930-something. <laughs> and so Northern we blame Northern Seminary for this whole mess. <laughs> I, I, get, you know, I guess that has the Bible. And so why do evangelicals have the Bible and now? And that's just not going to be sufficient to save you from the incoherence of the culture. Mm. Yeah. Uh, if you're reading the Bible, it's incoherent. The, I mean, years ago, I wrote Unleashing the Scripture. Yes. Argument that what we're suffering from is Protestant heresy, a solo scriptura, that got turned into solo text through the invention of the printing press, which was then given ideological formation through the creation of something called the democratic citizen which believes that they can read serious texts without moral guidance or spiritual formation. So the only thing that you can do is take the Bible away from American Christians and, and tell them that they need, first of all, to be under spiritual guidance before they enter into reading this text. That, that didn't win any friends. <laughs> but, uh, I remember it well. I remember, especially amongst <clears throat> evangelicals that didn't that didn't go over very well. I I I want to follow up on this theme by asking you about something. And more, Mike Moore, can you chime in on this? Okay, I wrote a post on my Facebook page the other day. Communal narcissism. Communal narcissism happens when a people in a community become addicted to the way a community supports each of them, each of their personalities. At this point, all discipleship into Jesus and his lordship is lost. The mission becomes all about me. And Mike Moore, have you seen this in churches? Because everywhere I go, communal, and if we know, Stanley, that Bonhoeffer talked about the the idol of the community and life together. Can you talk about Mike Moore? Are you seeing this communal narcissism in churches that you come in contact with? Yeah, seeing seen it in churches 
seen it a lot in church plants where the church becomes more of a support group, more of a therapy session. But I would love to hear what, what Stanley sees and what Stanley hears when, when Fitch says communal narcissism. Uh, I think it's, it seems contradictory since narcissism is one person staring into the stream, not a community. So communal narcissism seems not, it seems to embody attention in the phrase that makes it hard to explicate. But that's why it's such a good phrase, namely the presumption that when I go to church, everyone there is like me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I get to see me in my brother or sister, which is a deep limitation, it seems to me. The I think one of the things that we don't talk that much about is the significance of friendship with the church, which makes possible a relationship between people that are clearly different to get their friends. I think, it, I mean, just one of the basic things is how you think of the relationship between early people like me and young people who are beginning their lives within the church and within the world. And how that makes, how the church makes possible friendship between the the those age differences and the differences between how you understand the world is is a way to combat a kind of narcissism because friendship is hard work. Friendship combats narcissism because friendship is hard work. And by the way, uh, Stanley, uh, Mike Moore has only been married, is it three years now? Uh, Three years and uh, three months. Yeah. yeah, let me just repeat what I just said. Friendship is hard work. <laughs> Friendship combats narcissism. And and so uh, may may the Lord bless you with many, many years of friendship between you and your wife. Okay, I'm going to move into another thing here. The Roe versus Wade Dobbs decision. Many evangelicals, view this as a victory for the church. Is it a victory or is it a disaster? I I feel very ambiguous about Roe. On the whole, I always felt Roe was terrible law. Who was a pro-abortionist article. I think it was in the Yale Review Roe years ago where he explicated how Roe underwriting the the principle privacy uh, was incoherent because which it had been articulated it had been articulated the right to privacy in the Griswold decision that was in Connecticut, where in Connecticut you couldn't buy a condom because it was against the law. And that, that was took taken to Supreme Court, Supreme Court having no basis constitutionally created the right to privacy. 
been knocked down to Connecticut law. And then that led to the basis for the decision in Rome, where there is no, I mean, if the Constitution says nothing about abortion, it sure doesn't say anything about privacy. Where you where that could take you is a really interesting question. So I felt that Roe was bad law, but a result that was appropriate given the American fear of children mm. and that Christians would do better trying not to overturn Roe, but to be a people who would support the development of social policies that ensured that no child born in America would go hungry. So that we lack a child allowance provision in our public policy, I thought was an approach that Christians could embody as part of our service to the begot races, which I think were appropriate. No unwanted ch child is ever born, so you're ready to take the child in this country. I, partly, I was also thinking about Roe against the background of my involvement with the Council for the Mentally Handicapped, where it was clear that amniocentesis which could turn in very quickly to a search and destroy mission against Down syndrome children by mm. aborting early because you found out who, that you were carrying a Down syndrome yes. child. Yes. So, I, I mean, one of the things that I think is right has been said about Roe is how the medicalization of term, terminology is determining what you take to be the public appropriate public policy. Namely, this is a fetus up until how many weeks, 15 weeks, and so on, then you might have a child. The, the importance of description is crucial for how you want to think about. And an article I wrote years ago in the community character I explicate Judith Jarvis Thompson's account. She gives the example of imagine yourself being someone who wakes up and discovers that you are transfusing a gigantic violin virtuoso, and you didn't know that this was going to happen to you, but it has, and you're just told that you have to be hooked up to this violin virtuoso for nine months. <laughs> and then you'll be free from it because he'll be okay after nine months. Which gives people a sense of what it means for a woman who has undergone coercing sex of various kinds yeah. and discovers that they're pregnant. Do they, have to, do they have to carry the child for nine months? Well, as Christians, the resources we have for argument about those kinds of analogies are not the resources other people in America have for how to negotiate 
those situations. So we should be the kind of people that the vocabulary we is seen as a hopeful vocabulary mm. in terms of being able to receive uh, children uh, into our lives that were perhaps conceived in the most worrisome circumstances. Yes. Um, yes. That, that was, that's, that's the way that I think we began to talk about these matters in a way that hopefully provides some alternatives that otherwise wouldn't be there. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. Ways of offering hope to the world with a different vocabulary, a word that Stanley said a couple of times already in this podcast, vocabulary. I, I know we're running out of time, but I've got a big question, Mike, more for Stanley. How about, can I, can I fit another one in? Yeah. Yeah. We got time. Yeah. Now, now, Stanley, I know that you have a rather ambivalent relationship with democracy, a liberal democracy. You've argued over the years, liberal democracy is not our friend as the church. I hope I, I hope I summarize that well. But here we are faced with, it seems, a choice between democracy and authoritarianism or even fascism, some people might say in this country. Does the, so I always say, well, I think democracy is the better of the two options. Does the church have to think about getting, lending some help to keeping our democracy survive and in, improve? Or, or where are you at on that question? Does that question make sense? Well, it certainly does. And I've thought a lot about it since the Trump phenomenon. And I think I've been very critical of, as you know, of liberal democracy. And by that, you know, I mean, my little mantra we we live in a context in which people believe they should have no story except the story they chose when they had no story that's the fundamental moral psychology is behind liberal democracy and that that you should have no story except the story you chose when you had no story if, if you you don't believe that that's your story, not point out that do you think you should be held responsible for a decision you made when you didn't know what you were doing? No, people don't believe they should be held responsible for decisions they made when they didn't know what they were doing. What's <laughs> that makes marriage unintelligible? You never know Did you hear that, Mike Moore? It makes marriage unintelligible. Okay, yes. go ahead. <laughs> and, and, and it makes having children unintelligible because how do you know what you're doing? You never get the ones you want. So, and the, the irony is that you have no story except the story you chose when you had no story. Is a story you didn't, is a story you chose, but you didn't choose it. <laughs> so, so, what you experience, and this is, this is the moral psychology behind liberal democracy, that I got the idea about liberal democracy producing the people who believe they had no story except the story they chose when they had no story. That's Rawls' original position. Yeah. So I, I, you're always born into tradition determined alternatives. And that's what needs to be named. So I, I've been critical of liberal democracy as in terms of the kind of people that it produces. 
but Trump phenomenon has are frankly chastened. And it's chastened me to the sense that I, I don't think in terms of the kinds of political reflections I've suggested Christians need to do, I don't think I appropriately emphasize the rule of law. And I think what we've been seeing is over the past six years is the importance of rule deep, deep trouble without it. And so I've become more supporter of developments in terms of our politics than perhaps I've been in the past. I think I think it's not without we, we ought to be grateful that a political practitioner has clearly embedded in liberal democratic life as you could be, has been willing to govern. Like, that is, I think, Biden has provided an alternative that we desperately need. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day, we used to, this, this is, I think, from Luther, but in some parts of Luther, but also maybe in some parts of Reformed theology, the differentiation between an order of preservation an order of creation, some say order of redemption. So can we say that the liberal democracy, okay, it's an order of preservation, but it can't be an order of redemption or something along those lines? The Lutheran order of creation, order of redemption, which then also gave you the order of preservation, gave you Nazi Germany. Mm. You have to be very careful with that. Yes with that description of order of preservation or order of creation because it's um, how the Germans said we take a vow of loyalty to the state nothing can override that vow of loyalty to the yes. state that's order of preservation yeah I was kind of trying to argue okay now and I know Bruner's no friend of Bart in this regard but somewhere in that divine imperative book he he distinguishes, okay, can it be a preservation? Can we can we see democracy as something we should preserve the order or the rule of law like you were talking about, but it cannot do the work of redemption or it can and and of course this is gets to Bonhoeffer's penultimate ultimate understanding that that we gotta hold the government accountable to its in syncness with with God. None of those distinctions help though, Stanley. Bonhoeffer in order to avoid the underwriting of the status quo through the language of orders of creation, orders of preservation. Bonhoeffer suggested that you use the language of mandates. Yes. God makes mandates. It's, oh, it's God's word that always determines that those kinds of categories of judgment. But mandates will give you just as much. I'm just keeping the trains running on time. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yes. And so, folks, before before we lose all five remaining listeners with the, the in-depths of Reformed and Lutheran theology, one last question, Stanley, one last question. And I don't even know if you're going to like this question, but I, I was asked, TNT Clark did a handbook on Anabaptism, and I was asked to write the chapter on Neo-Anabaptism. And uh, I kind of shaped a whole stream of neo-anabaptism, which flowed from basically yourself. And I said 
something like this stream of theological development can lead the church out of the mess we're in. And I don't, I, I know various figures in the neo-Anabaptist movement don't even like the word neo-Anabaptist. Well, what can, can you, is there a future for the neo-Anabaptist movement? And where would people who are listening to this, where would be the next theologians to read to help us guide us out of a Christendom alignment with culture into a witness, faithfulness, truthfulness church that can give witness to the gospel in the midst of a falling apart culture. Any ideas on that? Well, there are discussions within the Anabaptist world, like we were wanting to argue for a different understanding of atonement, so on, to divide the Anabaptists to be more engaged in the world than allegedly they've been withdrawing from. Yes. And he's a good guy, but I, I, he can't take that position because he's a, such a determined Anabaptist. I, I think there are, I've had three Anabaptist students that I highly recommend reading anything you write. Alex Sider of Blackman College, Peter Dudla of the one in Virginia. Oh, Eastern Mennonite University. Yeah, yeah. And Chris Hubner of Canadian there. Yep. They all, I think, have done terrific work on trying to develop some of this. There's a young man who's not Anabaptist, Rob Dean, who's also Canadian. Yes. Travis Craker. Yes. One of the people that, I mean, he's been around much longer. But By, by the way, Stan, uh, Rob Dean's book, that Minding the Web, I believe it was. Yeah. You, you, I I actually blurbed that book. And and another little tidbit, Mike Moore is a graduate of Bluffton when and was Jay Denny Weaver's student. Right. Yep. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not mischaracterize it. No, I don't think you did. Uh, we, we had Denny on the podcast a couple of years ago as well. And I think those are the summaries that we walked away from with as well. Yeah, Denny's retired to Canada, hasn't he? He did, yeah. He, he retired. I think he's actually living up in Wisconsin now with his family. Yes. Yeah. Hey, this has been great. Talking about this present moment with Stanley Hauerwas. He's been giving us reflections on all the various things going on in, in our present culture and the church's strife in the culture. And it's been uh, really enjoyable and uh, not only insightful and educational, but I don't know, I had... I find it entertaining. <laughs> I, I, I have I have very high regard for, for entertainment as a <laughs> category. To be entertained to, uh, to be entertained in at least should be <laughs> be entertained is at least to be withdrawn to, is to be pulled out of yourself a bit. Yes. Mm, yeah. Yes. Can be the way she defeat narcissism. All right. With that zinger, and that is a zinger, with entertainment, 
you defeat narcissism. We want to thank Stanley for spending this 45 minutes with us. It's been a pure delight. If you have the urge while you're listening to this podcast, give us a positive review, whatever they do on Apple Podcasts or whatever these days, Mike Moore. And it's been such a delight to be with you all and having you tune into the podcast. We're doing this, I don't know, every other week. We're going to have a lot of guests this season. Mike Moore is working hard. And by the way, thank you, Mike Moore, for getting Stanley on the podcast. Of course. But until our next Next pod, it's Mike Moore and Dave Fitch with Stanley Howard checking out. Thanks for listening, everybody. Great to see you, Mike. You too. Take care. Amen. Thanks, Stanley. Yeah, thank you, Stanley.